the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, stuff going on in your life questions, really whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, I remind you, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend in church. We did yesterday. It was a, uh, we finished Acts chapter 27. Um, Paul going through some storms and obviously since all of us go through storms of life, uh, it was a really, really, I think, practical Bible study. Hey, a couple of quick things tonight. Our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies will all take place at 7 o'clock here at the church. Everybody worships together at 7, and then they kind of go their separate ways. Um, I think Lauren Blanton will be teaching the women, Pastor Ken teaching the men, and Pastor Chris and Pastor Matthew will be teaching the youth. I think just Pastor Chris tonight, because Pastor Matthew's out of town on business. So all of that at 7 o'clock, we'd love to have you attend. The ladies can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. Let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, William says, now this, William, is the strangest question I think I've ever gotten on the program. William says, he's speaking to me, do you pay people who volunteer at your church? If not, why not? And if so, why? Um William, the word volunteer means they volunteer. That's their service for the Lord. That's one of their offerings to the Lord. So, no, we don't pay people uh, who say to the Lord, I want to serve. We're content to let the Lord bless them. And I don't know what your motive is for asking the question. Now, clearly, we have people on staff, regular employees, uh, who are here, and they, too, are serving on Sundays and in the other days of the week that we have church. Um, but they're they're doing other service not related to their job. And again, as I said, it is their offering to the Lord. One of the things, William, that I mentioned, maybe this is the genesis of your question last week. I had a question uh, about what is what do, do we pay people to do stuff um, um, worship? Um my worship pastor is a third grade teacher, so he gets paid to work at Calvary Chapel. But what he does and the the time that they spend, Paula was on the worship team Sunday. She doesn't get paid. So no, we don't. We want that to be between them and the Lord, and we want them to receive reward for, for their giving. You know, 
often we think that giving is just us giving money. But there are people, William, who can't afford to, to give money. So they give of their time and they give of their talent in ways like this. So, no, at Calvary Chapel, we don't pay people volunteer. We have a wonderfully committed, generous with their time and with their energy group of people who've been serving from the very beginning. Let me just take another couple of minutes with this question because I think following sort of how this all came about, you know, when we started here, we were in a daycare center. Uh, before That wasn't our first place, but, but the first place we moved to was the daycare center. And it just happened. It was just something neat that the Lord was doing. Um, behind me where I would preach from uh, was a closet where all the chairs were stored. And it just started happening when we moved to that daycare center. After the final service, people would get up and they would form a line. And sort of like an old fire line, you know, the, they would just pass the chairs from the back to the front. And if they'd pass them from the back to the front, we'd have the tall guys in the closet because they're the ones that could stack the chairs. And that was just a picture. Now, we've been tearing down and setting up for 28 years. And uh, just that picture that the Lord gave us then, we had no idea that he is putting it in the hearts of people to serve. And William, whether it's you or anybody else, if you go to church, just going isn't enough. You ought to be serving. That's the way we minister to the body of Christ. That's the way we use our gifts. And the man or the woman who just comes to church and they figure, well, that's what I'm doing for the Lord. I'm coming to church. You're not giving anything to the Lord. David said, I will not give that to the Lord, which costs nothing. And what we need to do is remember that Sunday is not our day. It's his day. And he's given you gifts to be a blessing to others. And he wants you to use those gifts, whether it's a gift of helps, the gift of music, the gift of teaching, whether it's children or adults, um, the gift of exhortation and encouragement. That's Paula's, one of Paula's gift. Uh, and, and she is a wonderful encourager. But when we come to church on Sunday, we don't come as a spectator. And everybody, I don't care if your church is 20 people, 200 people, or 2,000 people. Everybody ought to be serving. Now, obviously, that's not the case. But it ought to be the case because there's no other reason to go. We go to hear from the Lord, to learn about him, to be equipped for the work of ministry, but also to do the work of ministry. William, I don't know whether you know anything about our church. We have three services. And we'll have people come to one service to hear the word. They'll serve the next service, and then they'll get involved in some other ministry in third service. We have a lot of people who are here all three services. We have many, many more who are here for at least two services, one to hear the word and then to um, use their gifts to minister to others, to serve. And that's what we all ought to be doing. So Luke chapter 17, William, is the perfect example Jesus' words about what a servant really is. We don't refer uh, to our people, by the way, who serve as volunteers. Uh, We call them servants. Um, Volunteers serve when it's convenient. Servants serve when the need arises. So, William, I hope that um, is sort of where you're going with the question. It was just, as I said, an unusual question. Here is a question. This one is from... Anonymous, hi, Pastor Ron. I hope you're doing well. Please advise me on what to do. I suspect that a loved one is in a same-sex relationship, and I don't know how to ask if my hunch is right. How should I proceed? Anonymous, I'm not at all for beating around the bush. I don't know why you suspect that. Uh, I don't know who the loved one is, but but if you have uh, that hunch, if you think that uh, that might be a possibility, then I would just sit down with that person and ask them directly and just say, please forgive me if I'm way off base. But there's just something in my heart, and maybe this is God giving you a word of knowledge. Are you in a same-sex relationship? And then wait for an answer. I, I bet you'll know what the answer is. 
even if they don't want to answer because of the way they respond. So that's the way to do it. Not in a harsh way, not in a judgmental way, not in a way that points out the same-sex relationships as being the worst thing ever. But just say, look, I want to help you. God loves you, and it's an opportunity to share. But I just don't think we should ever beat around the bush. Now, let me give you one exception to this or another avenue to this. If the reason you suspect that they're in a same-sex relationship is because you've been snooping, maybe looking at their phone, looking at their text messages. Um, In my old person days, we just said reading their diaries. Um, Then you begin by asking them for forgiveness. Uh, I've been snooping. Uh, I know it's wrong. I won't do it again. I'm sorry. And then say, but here's what I found when I was stooping and I want to know if it's true. Whatever it is, just be upfront and be honest. Don't act like what they're doing is worse than, than what you're doing. Just be direct with them in love. Be kind, but be direct. And anonymous, it is always possible to be kind and direct at the same time. Here is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron, I heard you preach about fear and worry. And it was refreshing to hear that it is normal for us to experience this. But I read in Revelation 21, 8, uh, about how the fearful will be condemned to hell. Can you please share your knowledge on this? Anonymous, I think I answered this question on Friday, uh, so I'll answer it again. Uh, the King James is actually uh, has incorrectly translated the word um, fearful. It's, it's the cowardly. And the cowardly um, are those who reject what they know is true. Maybe they're afraid of the consequences. Maybe they're afraid of what other people will say. But in the last days, during the the Great Tribulation, uh, people are going to take the mark of the beast and they're going to know what they're doing. And when they take the mark of the beast, their eternal fate is sealed. And many of them are going to do it simply because um, they know they can't buy or sell. In other words, they can't make a living. They won't be able to eat. They just don't want to face the consequences. So the word is cowardly, and 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 that's the Holy Spirit's purposeful word. And so it's not about fear. We are humans. We deal with fear. And the question is, how do we deal with fear? Do we feel deal with fear in faith, or do we? And I'm going to use the other word, cowardly. Is that the way we respond? to the things we're afraid of. A lot of people are afraid and they don't do the things they know they're supposed to do. And that's certainly going to get us in a, in a big, big problem. So um, Revelation 21, eight's the cowardly. Uh, those are the ones. And all of the newer translations have that. In fact, even the new King James has the word cowardly in there as well. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I did answer this question by producing on Friday's show at the exact same time um, I did at 4.13. See, I'm in a rut. (laughs) Okay, here's the next question. This is from Sherry. Uh, Is seminary necessary to be a pastor? I'm asking for my husband. No, Sherry, uh, seminary is not necessary to be a husband. Or I'm sorry, to be a pastor. So, um, you know, the, the only thing that's necessary is um, the calling. Uh, of course, you've got to be born again. The calling from God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that seminary or Bible college is a bad thing. Not at all. What it means is that God has a plan for your husband. And uh, whatever that plan is. Um, your husband needs to find it. I can tell you this for you and your husband, Sherry. Uh, If he's called to be a pastor, that's God's plan for him. It will be the richest life you can ever imagine. Not easy, heartbreaking a lot of the time, but a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gift from God to be called to to, to be a pastor. In fact, Ephesians 4 says that being a pastor is God giving that pastor as a gift to that church. Let me share, give you an idea why it's so wonderful. Yesterday, 
here at church. I had the, just I, it gripped my heart. I just this wonderful opportunity to dedicate a baby. Now we do a lot of baby dedications here, but uh, this baby, I actually had the privilege of dedicating her father 23 years ago. And now I've got big dad. He's a very huge man. I have big, tall dad on the stage with me. And the wife that God has brought into his life, just a sweet, sweet woman who is so excited to get her daughter baptized or dedicated. And um, just, just the thought of, Lord, look what you let me do. So, Sherry, encourage your husband to seek God's plan with all of his heart. Seminary is fine, but no seminary is fine as well. Uh, The Lord gifts, the Lord calls, and the Lord equips. Thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585, and we'd love your live calls and questions or comments about anything that we're talking about. Um, Patrick says, in your opinion... How much of the book of Revelation is prophecy? Um, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, we have the outline of the book of Revelation. John is told to write the things that he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will be. Now, the things that he sees is the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Then he is told to write the things that he that that are, and that's the church age, and those were seven historical churches, chapters two and three, um, seven historical churches, and Jesus had a very personal, specific message for those churches, and then the things that will be that begins in chapter four through the rest of the book, and all of it is prophecy. Now I think it's important when he's told to write the words of this prophecy. He says in chapter 1 that he's to write the words of this prophecy. When we understand that, it means all of it is prophetic. Now, it's literal, it's historical, but it is also prophetic. So all of it is a prophecy, and the, and the, the book of Revelation identifies it as a prophecy as well. I think sometimes, Patrick, we forget that. I'll give you just an example in Revelation 2 and 3, in the things that are section, um, again, there's seven historical churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, churches that uh, were specifically chosen by God. And the reason he chose them is because all of them had things going on in them or things that they were facing that uh, are prophetic in nature for us. And in other words, um, the seven churches and what was going on in those are going on in churches that, that now, nearly 2,000 years later, are, we're still dealing with. Uh, but it's also true that individual Christians, if, if you read those seven letters, I promise you the Holy Spirit is going to convict you because those things are things that we're facing as well. So while they're not a prophecy like the rest of the book is, it has prophetic value uh, because um, the rest of the church age and individual Christians are dealing with all of those things. So, Patrick, that's the, um, the, the Revelation is a prophecy, all of it. Thank you very, very much. I love the book of Revelation. Patrick, for you and for anybody else who's interested, uh, my notes are online at calvaryessay.com, my commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, but also all of our Bible studies. And, and I think it's very um, important to go slowly, but, uh, but, but genuinely wanting to hear from the Lord through the book of Revelation. I tell our church, um, the, the, just the individual people, there's two books that you ought to read in your individual reading every year, twice a year. That's the book of Acts and the book of Revelation. And um, there's so much richness in those books for us. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from Melissa. Um, Does God favor men over women? The answer, no, Melissa, happily is no. He does not favor men over women. Uh, He does, however, um, give us um, different roles. Men have roles. Women have roles. 
but all of those roles are equally important and equally necessary. So no, God doesn't favor men over women. He has made men the head of the household. The husband is the head of the wife. And when Paul talks about that, writing to the churches in Corinth, uh, he, he sets sort of a hierarchy. He says, um, God the Father is over Christ. Uh, Christ is over man. Man is over woman. And, and of course, Jesus isn't less than God. He is God. And in the same way, woman isn't less than man. Uh, he's simply saying that these are the roles that God has given. And Melissa, when we find ourselves using the gifts that God has given us uh, in the role that God has given us, that's when we're going to find our greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in our service and ministry for the Lord. So I hope that makes sense. Um, a lot of critics will say, well, God hates women or God is prejudiced against women. No, uh, there's no difference, male or female. We simply have different roles. That's all. Good question. Thank you very, very much. George says, Pastor Ron, how is the presence of God in our lives manifest practically? What would an observer see? George, this is a wonderful question because I think sometimes we, we throw out these Christian platitudes without really understanding the value of them. I can tell you when I'm in the presence of the Lord, what people see is a Ron who is kind, a Ron who is gentle, a Ron who is patient. Wait a minute, I'm quoting the fruit of the Spirit. That's exactly what they're going to see. If if I'm with the Lord, and I'm, I'm talking about in a physical, spiritual sense, and by that I mean while God's presence isn't manifest physically, he's there physically. He's in me physically. So when I'm hanging out with Jesus, that's why, George, the theme of our church for many, many years now has been just be with Jesus. I'm going to be who he wants me to be. I'm going to be a reflection of him instead of a reflection on him. And I'll just give an example. When Paul and I are out walking around and we're talking to people and we're sharing the Lord, people are going to see a man and a wife who, one, obviously are in love with the Lord, obviously in love with each other, but we want to share that joy, and they're going to see that joy. I tell people all the time, you know, you may not agree with what I say, but when I want you to leave any conversation with me, understanding is that, well, he, I don't agree with him, but he, he really loves Jesus. He really believes what he's saying. And so that's what people are going to see. And that's why it's so important, George, when we get up in the morning to fight our flesh, to work our way into the presence of the Lord and surrender. And as we surrender, we can say, Jesus, today of my own free will, I choose to serve you. And if you'll do that, he'll hang out with you all day. And then people are going to see a George who is loving, a, a, a George who is grateful, a George who is full of the joy of the Lord, even in difficult circumstances. A kind George, a patient George, a George who isn't looking to keep a record of wrongs that other people do to him, but a, a George who's an eager forgiver. Let me also say this, George. I think one of the things, maybe more practical than all of it, is that when we are in the presence of the Lord, we're going to be eager and quick repenters. When I'm hanging out with the Lord and I do something wrong, instantly the Holy Spirit convicts me. And because I don't want that fellowship broken, uh, I can say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've said this on this program many times, but I think David, um, at least in my view, David is called a man after God's own heart, not because David was a good man, David did horrible things. But David appears to be one of the best repenters in the history of the world. He hated his sin. And when we're hanging out with Jesus, we're going to hate our sin. We won't use foul language. We won't yell and get angry. If you're hanging out with Jesus, how can you yell at somebody? I, I think about Christian husbands and wives arguing with one another, raising their volume level, saying 
horrible, unkind things, which, by the way, children hear. And you can't do that if you're hanging out with Jesus because instantly you'd know how displeased he was. Nobody likes to hear this, but I don't think Christian husbands and wives should ever argue. But we're only human, and you're going to argue. You don't have to. That's a sin. How are you going to explain to Jesus? And so if you're with him, then you're going to exercise self-control, another evidence that you're hanging out with Jesus. That's how important it is to hang out in the presence of the Lord. So, George, that's as practical as I can be. And literally, Jesus will change every facet of your life in Christ and use you to be a witness to others if you just spend time with him. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what it will look like. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show. We would love your calls and questions. 340-9585. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show, 340-9585. That's area code 210 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You are on the radio. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you today? I'm doing well, Cindy. The mountain cedar is kicking my boo-boo, but other than that, I'm doing good. Well, you can't not breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know what? I I read a a chapter of Proverbs every day in in part of my reading, and every time I get to day eight, I just love it. It is my favorite chapter in Proverbs. Well, there's a few of them, but this is like it. And what I'm curious about is when it's talking about um, I was by his side, you know, when, when all these things were created, the, the verse that, that I'm kind of thinking about is, Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. I mean, the whole chapter just melts my heart. But what I was wondering is that, who was saying that? Because I was thinking about, well, could be, could it be the Lord? But without the Lord, would have to be the Holy Spirit. I mean, or or is it kind of like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that is saying that all at the same time? It's on chapter eight, verse um, thirty and, and thirty-one. So it, it's just kind of something I was kind of figuring out who who um, you know, who who would say that. So I'm going to get off the radio, I mean, off the phone <laughs> and listen on the radio. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it. I was looking looking for the verse, so you gave it to me. Let me get to it. <clears throat> I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, verse 27. Right, let me go to verse 26. Um, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills I was given birth, before he made the earth of the fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place. And on and on he goes to his conclusion. I says, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Um, this is sort of mindful of Job. Um, God saying to Job, if I can do all this, you can trust me with your questions and with your problems. And, of course, we know Job was going through a really difficult time. But the idea uh, is that um, this is God in the background uh, doing uh, the work of creation. And um, he's, he's sort of marveling at the work that he's done by himself. So um, re- remember, this is poetry. And the whole section, verses 22 through 31, is the idea is wisdom is infinite. 
and um, uh, the wisdom is personified in Jesus. He is the creator, but the poet is using this poetic language, using wisdom, and wisdom was there. And, and the, the encouragement for us is that, that there's nothing that happens by chance, nothing by mistake. Uh, it was all a part of the plan of God. Uh, this is sort of like John saying, in the beginning was the word, logos, L-O-G-O-S. Um, the reason behind all things, um, not not the word, the physical person of Jesus Christ, but he's describing the work that the Lord did uh, in in terms that his Jewish audience would understand. Solomon is kind of doing the same thing. So wisdom poetically uh, is personified in Jesus Christ. I don't think that that was Solomon's intent. I don't think he was writing about the Lord, but I'm thinking what he was doing is saying uh, poetically that the wisdom is personified in the Lord. I know a lot of people, Cindy, like you, who read uh, a proverb a day. In fact, I'm married to one of them, and she's often sharing with me um, what the Lord has done. So good idea. Here's a great question from Scott. Pastor Ron, I'm struggling with that fine line difference between being okay when I'm wronged, and parenthetically writes 1 Corinthians 6, 7, by letting some infraction against me or some one pass by versus when I should approach the person or persons to address their infraction. Can you help me? I always want to approach these things in love. You know, Scott, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, is one of the most difficult verses for our flesh in all of Scripture. Um, what we are told there is that this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Now remember, uh, this whole letter is a letter of correction and rebuke. And he's scolding them uh, in this chapter. And they're suing one another in front of unbelievers. And he says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you uh, means you've been completely defeated already. And then he says this, and this is, I think, the heart of Scott's question. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Well, I can tell you, Scott, why I would rather not be wronged or rather not be cheated, because it hurts. And my flesh wants to get even. But God says we need to take the high road. Now, we see Christians suing other Christians all the time. And when we see that, we can say safely that this is flesh in control, not the Holy Spirit in control, flesh in control. And here's the question. Remember, Jesus said, um, you have to lose your life to find it. He says, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for me, you'll find it. Here's what he's saying. If you've been wronged, no matter how angry you are, no matter how unfair it may seem, if you've been wronged, rather than go to court against another believer, it's easy to say, well, they're not acting like a believer, so this isn't fair. But if you go to court against another believer, then it's your flesh that's pushing all of the buttons. And instead of allowing that, we can exercise self-control, we can exercise faith and say, Jesus I want to honor you. And here's the question. Do we trust that the Lord will provide for us, that he will take care of us? Is it okay if by being wronged and not making a big deal out of it or not suing somebody, um, is it okay? Is it enough for us to know that Jesus is in heaven smiling? You may have other people saying, well, you should get even with them or you should you should sue them. Um, is it more important that Jesus is pleased than you being vindicated or reimbursed or whatever the, the infraction was? Now, again, every single time, Scott, my flesh is going to say, no, I don't want to be cheated. But But when we respond in our flesh, Paul says that we've already been defeated. Now, let me address the second part of your question there. Um, when you said, um, let me get to it again. Um, what's the fine line about approaching someone? Um, if somebody, a professing believer, has cheated you, they've sinned against you, I think we should always approach them. 
I mean, I think it's our responsibility. We want to give them an opportunity to get right with God. So if somebody's cheated you or somebody's wronged you, they've sinned against you, I think we can go to them. We don't have to go in anger. We don't have to go to be vindicated. All we have to do is say, what you did to me is wrong. And Jesus wants to forgive you, but you've got to recognize that you need to be forgiven. And then it's between them and the Lord. But I think we should always go to them, not to get anything out of it. That's up to the Lord. But we should go to them because we want to give everybody an opportunity to get right with the Lord. And sometimes, Scott, when you do that, it's, it's gonna, the people are going to get angry at you. Who do you think you are? And they'll respond in their flesh. When we refuse to respond to their flesh with flesh of our own, that's when we can experience the pleasure of God, the smile of God in our lives. And I think it, it's just that important if, in fact, um, we'll just be content with being pleasing to the Lord. But i got to tell you, it is a battle with our flesh every single time. So, Scott, I hope that helps a little bit. And believe me, you're not alone in struggling with not only the fine line, but uh, just the idea of being cheated or wronged at all. Um, I've had people say really bad things about me. I'm a public person. and You know, over the years there have been situations where difficulties arise. But rather than reflect poorly on the Lord, I found that just taking a walk with the Lord and letting Him remind me of how pleased He is that I didn't take matters into my own hand, I find that one of the most satisfying moments of my fellowship with the Lord. And he will be faithful, Scott. Thank you very, very much for the question. I know if this is always the same, Scott, but if it is, he asks some of the greatest questions. Nancy asks, uh, is Ephesians 2.8, or I'll change, does Ephesians 2.8 mean that God doesn't require we believe, but gives belief to some and not others? Nancy, Ephesians 2.8 simply means that Um, We are saved by grace through faith. And that, the faith, Greek makes that clear. And that, the faith to believe, isn't faith that we had on our own. The faith itself is a gift from God. And God gives that gift to everyone who will believe. It's not like God says, okay, I'm going to give you the power to believe but I'm not going to give you the power to believe. No, that faith, it's sort of a general grace, a, a grace that God gives to everybody so that they can make a choice. But for those of us, Nancy, who believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who are born again, we can't take credit for anything. Have you ever heard a testimony where people will say, um, you know, uh, when I gave my life to Jesus or when when I surrendered to Jesus, um, I found Jesus. Jesus was never lost. So what we have to do is understand that even the faith to believe was a gift from heaven. That means we can't take any credit for it. We can't brag about it. All we can do is understand that God loves us so much. Now, the reality is, Nancy, that a lot of people reject that gift. A lot of people, I don't want to believe, and and, and they'll just turn away from the Lord. But for you and me, Nancy, that faith was a gift from God. I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. One of the problems with testimonies, and we've been in the book of Acts, where testimonies or personal witness is is very important and very, very powerful. But one of the problems with testimonies is because a lot of times people take more credit for their salvation. Yeah, I was a jerk, but then I saw the light. no. Jesus came to you. I'm going to be sharing my testimony. I thought it was going to be uh, three weeks from yesterday, but it's actually going to be four weeks. Um, I'm going to go a little bit slower in the last two chapters, or chapter and a half, rather, of the book of Acts. 
Um, but I'm going to be giving my testimony, and it really is a testimony simply to the power and the goodness and the persistence of God who chases us to the ends of the earth. I like the description. Um, he's the hound of heaven. He's chasing us. He's sniffing us out. Uh, and, and when he finds you, it changes everything. So, Nancy, it doesn't mean that some have an unfair advantage over others. That gift of faith is a, a, a gift given to everybody to make a choice about what to do with it. It's kind of nice knowing that I didn't do anything at all, nothing at all, with that had to do with me being saved. God did all the work. It was his idea, and he did all the work. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from. My eyes are really bad today. I'm having a hard time finding the right thing on the computer screen. Okay, here's an anonymous question. When do you think a pastor should stop being bivocational and go full time? Anonymous, we have planted, our church has planted a lot of churches. Um, I don't know how many exactly, but more than 35 churches that we've planted. And one of the things that I tell tell the pastors who are sending out to plant the church is that they're, the, the people that call them pastor, they need them. They need them to be available. Now, I understand there are men who have callings and they've got families and they've got to provide an income. But I think this is part of the the walking by faith that God requires a pastor to practice. And I think every pastor, this is my direction to the people that we've sent out, find out what God wants you to do. Don't work at a job because it makes sense. Don't work at a job because, well, I got to pay rent. Um, If God's called you, say, Lord, I'm willing to work or I'm willing to not work. What do you want me to do? And I believe with all of my heart that God will give that pastor direction, clear direction. And then I tell these pastors, uh, Anonymous, that uh, the, the most important thing they can do is be available to those people. So more than a building, more than computer equipment, the, the thing that your church needs the most is a pastor. And so I always favor a pastor going full-time, trusting the Lord. Uh, And I say that with the caveat that God has a different plan for some people, and you need to seek his plan. So, again, I think the sooner the better. Uh, I can promise you this. It is always, always, always going to be a step of faith. And uh, when there's a step of faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 kicks in. It's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful, and he's going to stretch you. You know, when Paul and I got here to San Antonio, um, we had no idea where our next meal was going to come from. And there were many opportunities, you know, uh, and I don't say this with any arrogance at all, but in my pre-Christ life, um, I had a gift to make money. Uh, it just, it just something that I've always been able to do. And there were times when I would plead with the Lord, Lord, uh, let me get a job. Let me do something. I can, I can do it, and I can do this as well. But God had a special work for us here, and he, he was really testing me. And I remember pleading with him one particular day. It was really bad. I mean, we had no money at all. And I remember thinking, Jesus, I could take care of this. And he, he rebuked me very, very harshly. And it was like his his patience was wearing thin with me. And here's what he spoke to my heart. He said, if you ask me one more time, that will be sin. It won't be doubt. It'll be sin. You see, I knew, Paula knew, we were in agreement that we were here to trust him for our every need. And I'm going to tell you, it was really, really really hard, painfully hard, but it was exceedingly wonderful as well. Because we got to see the hand of God move time and time again. We saw God in miraculous ways, and I'm not talking about huge walking on water miracles, but we got to see God provide 
when we'd lost all hope over and over and over again in many different ways. So I think a pastor ought to go full-time as soon as he can, but at the direction and the leading of the Holy Spirit, and then understand that he is in for a battle. His family needs to be on board, and they're in for a battle as well. You know, the idea, and I know pastors that do this, well, well, God would want me to provide for my family. Well, God is responsible for providing for your family. If God wants you to work, he'll tell you. But unless he tells you the calling to be a pastor, anonymous, supersedes any other responsibility that you've got in your life. And as you pursue that in faith, what will happen is your family will be brought along and they will get to experience the power of God in your life right along with you. So I hope that makes sense. Here is an anonymous, another anonymous question. Uh, Pastor, should I confess the lies I've been telling about people to everyone I've told them to? Uh, Absolutely, you should. If possible, you should. All right, as far as it depends on you. Make peace with all men. You, you can't always make peace. Uh, you're not going to be able to remember everybody that you've been telling lies to. But I think them seeing this change in your life is really significant. And this is one of those times where you're going to be able to share what God is doing in your heart to people that you've wronged. And they're going to be the ones who will be the most comforted by it. So if you've been telling lies about people, uh, gossiping, whatever it is, You absolutely should apologize first to the people that you've been gossiping or lying about. And then you should let them know that I am going to go to everybody that I can remember that I've told these lies to and let them know that I've sinned against them, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you, and I was wrong. And ask their forgiveness as well. And if you'll do that, Anonymous, you will see God move in marvelous ways. So, do it with the right heart. God will be pleased. Um, Rodney wants to know, Pastor Ron, how do I balance the love of God with the fear of God? I struggle with this concept. Um, Rodney, I think as humans, we do. You know, we think Jesus, he's so gracious and he's so loving and he's so kind. And all of those things are true. But I think we forget that he is also almighty, holy, just God. And that's the fear of God. The love of God is evident throughout Scripture. The fear of God is more, and this is the way it works for me, is is a fear of not being in his will, a fear of being in sin, a fear of uh, depriving myself of the fellowship, the intimacy that he wants to have. So, um, you know, Isaiah arguably one of the two holiest men in our Old Testaments, if not the whole Bible. Um, And when I say one of two, Isaiah being one of them and Daniel being the other, there's nothing bad said about either one of those men in the Bible. There is no sin pointed out. And yet, when he encountered the holiness of God, he said, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. And he thought he was going to die. That's the fear of God. We need to get up in the mornings, Anonymous. I'm sorry, Rodney, with the the, the fear of God motivating us to report for service. Lord, what about me and what about today? And if we'll do that, then we're walking in the fear of God. We won't um, let fear keep us from stepping out. We won't let uh, our flesh or our, our own priorities keep us from serving God. We'll simply say, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do because I don't want to miss out. You know, Rodney, one other aspect that works in my life when I consider these two things, um, I don't want to miss out on anything that God has. And I am deathly afraid of missing out on something God has for me. You know, he has blessed me so abundantly and I've seen such marvelous things. Like yesterday, I mentioned in the first half of the program, uh, I got to dedicate a baby um, whose father I dedicated 23 years ago. God lets me do that. And I don't want to miss out on anything he has. And the thought of that is terrifying to me. 
So I think that is a healthy filial fear of God. And I think that's the way we balance it. When we're walking with Jesus, there's no fear. Fear has to do with judgment. Uh, When we're maybe walking away from the Lord, or maybe we're ignoring what he wants to do in and through our lives, well, then it seems as though perhaps we've lost the fear of God. And Rodney, the best way to balance those two things is to just be with Jesus. If you're hanging out with the Lord, you will have no struggle at all with that concept. It certainly doesn't mean that we need to be terrified of God because he's going to get us. Um, We need to remember how much he loves us. And I think remembering the height and width and depth and breadth of his love for us keeps us in that place of balance. So I hope, Rodney, that makes sense to you. Thank you for asking the question. Hey, we're done for today. Um, Tonight, our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies will be at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch live stream at calvarysa.com. And um, that starts at 7 o'clock. You can make it a family affair. Thank you for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. I'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.